I invite you to take a Bible in hand and turn to the New Testament letter by the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. This evening, our scripture text to start with will be Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. If you're using one of the Bibles from the Purack, you can find the passage on 983, Colossians chapter 1. We'll read it for us in a moment. We are closing out our fall uh, sermon series, Hard Questions About Christianity. We began back in September, and we've covered a a full gamut of, of questions. Tonight, we close with, is Christianity opposed to science? And I gotta be honest, it's trying to make this as Christmassy as possible, and I don't think it's possible. Um, there's two ways to think about this question. Um, there's the assumption, or maybe the premise, that science discredits the claims of Christianity. Therefore, Christians are anti-science. It's a common assumption that the findings of science will discredit the claims of religion, including the claims of Christianity. So since Christ, uh, science will discredit the claims of the Christian faith, the followers of the Christian faith must either compromise or deny and oppose science. That's one way to think about this question or why this question is important. Um, another reason why this question is important, the common assumption that science and religion, and therefore Christianity, do different things. They offer different things. They deal with different categories and different realms. So, we're supposed to look to science for facts about reality. Science provides knowledge about the cosmos and existence. And we look to religions like Christianity for ideas that will help us make it through life Religion might help us cope, it could shape our character, or even help us find some sort of purpose for living. However, at the end of the day, that's all religion may offer, something to help individuals just make it through life. But when it comes to providing knowledge, it's not in the same category as science. Simply stated, science deals with true facts and Christianity, like all other religions, deals with what is true for the individual. What will help you? Well, to the first, the Christian faith does not accept the premise that science disproves the claims of Christianity. And to the second, the Christian faith makes claims that are absolute and cannot be put in a box called religion. So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with what is pitted as competing claims about the source of true knowledge. Does it actually have to be competing claims? Now, this may be an unnecessary disclaimer, but believe it or not, I am not a scientist, at least not in the sense that the word is used today. And there are many, many Christians in the field of the natural science and other sciences 
And my intent is in no way for you to question that a Christian can work in the field of science, especially in academia. In fact, my goal is to encourage Christians in the work of science today. That's one of my goals. And again, I'm not a scientist, but like everyone here listening, occasionally you and I have to reckon with these sweeping claims of science. And sometimes it just hits us in the course of everyday life. So my goal tonight is not to make a case that quantum physics actually somehow demonstrates the existence of God. There are people in the pew here tonight I know can do that. I'm not one of them that can make that case. In fact, oftentimes this is one of these sermons where you'll say something and then someone after will teach you something about science. And so I'm fully prepared for that. Um, We can talk after. You can send me an email. It'll be very interesting. I'll learn a ton from you. My goal is to help us engage with those sweeping claims of pop science that appear to discredit the Christian worldview at every turn. So the way I want to approach answering this question tonight is to begin with a Christian statement about reality. And that's why we're turning to Colossians chapter 1. And after establishing this foundational Christian belief, then we'll just simply explore whether or not Christianity is opposed to science. So before we hear God's word from Colossians chapter 1, please join me in prayer. Our Lord and our God, creator of all things, the one who gives life and existence and breath to all beings, the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one to whom every detail of all of human history and every moment is before your eyes. To you we come. We humbly ask that your word would bring light to our minds and hope to our hearts tonight. And that by hearing and listening and considering your word, we would see your son Jesus exalted. And I ask that there would be those here among us who are coming to investigate the claims of Christianity that would use me, your servant, to help point them to the bread of life, to the living water, to the one and only and true Lord and Savior. I ask this all for your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Verse 15, what do we see there? He, the he is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. 
that when you learn of Jesus, you learn about what the one true God is like, and that he is the firstborn of creation. This is not saying that the Son is a created being, but it is emphasizing his preeminence, that his primacy in all things. Then in verse 16, it makes it very clear that the Son, Jesus, is the agent by whom creation came into being. We see here in verse 16, the statement that the origin of all things, creation, is made by God. And the agent of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the Son. It's made by the Son through the Son. And there's this absolute claim that all things come by him and through him and are for him. So the all things mean that there is nothing that existed before him. And then we see in verse 16 that it's not just what can be seen today, but there is this invisible realm. It's not just the material world, but there is a realm of existence beyond the material universe. And Jesus is responsible for creating that realm as well. Both what is seen and what is unseen is under the creative power of Jesus, the Son of God, and it is all subject to his lordship. So here, in verse 16, we see the purpose of creation. It is for the Son, so that the eternally begotten Son would reign over the creation for his worship, for his enjoyment, for the revelation of his glory. In summation of verse 16, he brings everything into existence and he is its goal and purpose. In verse 17, it says that Jesus is before all things. We could take before there in two senses. It's, it could be interpreted in the temporal sense, meaning that he was before time itself. That time itself was created and so any study of time, Jesus is before it. He exists outside of it. And that's the wonder of the incarnation that he entered it. He existed before time. It's also, in a sense, the hierarchy of creation. He is outside of it in a unique position above it. He is before it. And then in the close of verse 17, he holds it all together. He is the preserver of all that exists. Nothing exists without the Son. It is only the triune God that is self-sustaining. Nothing that is created sustains itself. It is sustained here, we're told in Colossians, by the Son, by Jesus. So drawing on a conclusion from this passage, William Hendrickson put it this way, the so-called laws of nature have no independent existence. They are expressions of his will. Because he delights in order and not in confusion, it is possible to speak of laws. Think about the created world. Just not even going into the, the, the spiritual realm, the immaterial world. 
The Bible gives us glimpses into that in the book of Daniel and Revelation and in other places, but just dealing with the created world and what we can observe. You know, this, we're coming into the time of year of the grays here in mid-Michigan where we don't get to see the sun. It's, it's quite amazing that the sun can be blocked out by clouds because the sun is huge. The sun is over 7 million miles in circumference. How big is that? Well, it would take 109 Earths to go across the face of the sun. So the sun, it's the biggest star in our solar system. But our solar system is just part of the Milky Way galaxy. And in that galaxy, the sun is a medium-sized star among is estimated to be billions of stars. And then our galaxy is estimated to be just one of a hundred billion galaxies. That's a lot of big numbers. Here's another big number for you. 4,500. 4,500. 4,500 species of cockroaches in the world. Did you know that? Now, one of the great things about living, at least in this part of Michigan, unlike where I was raised in the South, I've never seen a cockroach in my home once in Michigan. To God be the glory. Amen. That's, he, he's, our brothers lived in North Carolina. He knows in the South, just, and they fly. The cockroaches fly. And we, anyways, they're pests. But don't worry, scientists say that of those 4,500 species of cockroaches, only 30 of them are actually pests. I would consider them all pests. So there are innumerable stars, and there are way too many cockroaches. Why? Because Jesus wanted them. He created them. And they're created for him. Created by Jesus and for Jesus. One day... Dear saint, when you get to heaven, I know we're all going to have a similar question. We're going to say, our Lord, why mosquitoes? And he's going to have an answer. It's going to be for his glory. And he'll explain. Here's the Christian statement about reality. Where did the cosmos come from? God created it. And specifically, the sun is the agent of creation. Why does the cosmos exist? For the glory of God. Specifically, for the praise of Jesus. So, is Christianity opposed to science? And I, you're going to think I cheated on this answer, but I didn't, and I'll explain it. The answer is no, and the answer is yes. Is Christianity opposed to science? It's not opposed to the scientific method. But Christianity is opposed to science being the final and decisive authority for explaining reality. So first, Christianity is not opposed to the scientific method. What do we mean by that? It's the methodological investigation using observable experience and critical reflection to attempt to understand and explain the world and the cosmos. Using observable experience and critical reflection 
to attempt to understand and explain the world and the cosmos. See, historically, we could run through just the, the ages and identify that the first scientists believed that the universe was designed and created by God, and that is what motivated and drove their investigations throughout the ages. That this world has meaning and purpose and design, and God has shown it to us, and we can learn from it for his glory and for the good of one another. And so we could go through the ages and look at different examples. One, just quick way to think about it, you know, Albert Einstein wasn't exactly a, a reformed Presbyterian evangelical believer, but did you know that in his study on the wall, he had pictures of three scientific heroes, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. All of them who profess faith in God. Now, Isaac Newton, who lived from 1642 to 1727, wasn't exactly orthodox in his beliefs, but he actually wrote more about theology than physics. Michael Faraday, who lived from 1791 to 1867, who was a pioneer in the field of electromagnetism, he was responsible for the Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, the Faraday waves, and his letters speaks of the wisdom and the power of God in creation. And then James Clerk Maxwell, who lived from 1831 to 1875, is responsible for the unification of physics, bringing together concepts related to electricity, magnetism, and light. He himself was an evangelical Presbyterian and an elder in the Church of Scotland. These were Albert Einstein's heroes, and we could go through the ages. It's not hard, actually, to discover even current contemporary scientists at places like MIT, Harvard, and the leading universities. It's amazing. I consider just sharing some of these testimonies. You can find them uh, in different apologetic works. But some of these people came into academic work as believers, and some... It was in their scientific study that drove them to the cross and drove them to the creator for them to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so in light of what Christians believe about reality, there's something that we should be drawn to exploring our Father's world. Sing the hymn, this is my Father's world. But Colossians tells us it's more than that. It's the Father's world through the Son. And so there is such thing as scientists who are not secular and Christians, highly motivated because they love Jesus. And they see their work as for his glory. And then they see their work because God is good. And that though this world is marred by sin in the fall, that it is still has remnants and reflections of this good creation. That though creation itself is, is groaning under the fall, as Romans 8 says, that it's still of God's good creation. And so there are things to be understood, and we could in a sense say even discovered for the good of one another. 
There could be things that might be aids to bring relief to pain and suffering. That might bring clean water and other things that may help. Herman Boving put it like this, the good that science can do is to systematize knowledge to aid in normal life. And that's not to belittle, that is to say, what greater work could you do but to serve humanity in that way for the good of others? Because when there's the flourishing of life, there's opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Now, we do want to say that Christianity is opposed to science in this way. The claim that science is the final and decisive authority for explaining reality. And this is largely how I've been using the word science. And you notice like people use science as a, as a noun to mean something. You're like, what do you mean by science? They say, well, science. And, and there's this, it's, I mean, one of the greatest Christmas films um, in recent history, maybe of all time. In 2018, uh, there was a remake of The Grinch um, and there's this plot between the kids about how to trap Santa because one of the little girls wants to talk to Santa. And so the boy says, we'll put maple syrup on the roof so when Santa Claus lands, he'll get stuck. And then he just says, and it'll work because science. Well, that's that pop science. That's that pervasive just, it's a conversation ender. The discussion can't go any further. If you appeal to this vague notion, this idea of just science, it is the ultimate authority. And Neil deGrasse Tyson said it, or Bill Nye said it, and therefore it must be true. Corey Brock defines this in this way, a collective consciousness of authority spoken of in the singular. A collective consciousness of authority spoken of in the singular. And that's not necessarily... A bad thing, but when it's determinative of all things, then it is quite dangerous. And what you and I often have to deal with is pop science, and that is the presentation of scientific investigation of a massive collection of thought, but then without any nuance or subtlety or humility. And if you recognize in our world today, there is this priesthood of pop scientists who are thought to contain true knowledge and whatever they say is true. So science is therefore the only true source of knowledge and everything else is just faith. Everything else is subjective and science can only be objective. Christians, you believe in what you can't see. Science observes and gives us facts and tells us the truth. The challenge to this is that as we define the scientific method, all these observations must be interpreted. They must be interpreted. The scientific method, while it aims to be objective, is inevitably touched by the subjective, the subjective judgment of those involved. There is observation 
and then critical reflection, and then an articulation of an understanding and explanation. Some of you, many of you in this congregation have done this. You spent five to six years doing research in a subject right there at Michigan State, and then you reflected, you thought about it, and you did your best to articulate what you could observe from it. But the best scientists would come to the end of themselves and say, I don't have all the answers. And the best scientists among us would be those who have way more questions than they have answers. The point being is that this authority called science itself is not free from faith. But it itself is reliant on faith. A different kind of faith than the Christian faith. Let me explain. When pop science makes absolute claims about the origins of the world, the cosmos, and being, that is not something that has been observed. That is not something that was, was seen by, self, by sense perception. It's a, it's a statement of faith. When pop science makes a claim about the future of the world and what is to happen, that too is a statement of faith. Science has its own creation story by faith and its own eschatological faith position. Augustine helped Christians understand that we stand in a position when it comes to God, many things are mysterious. And we come to God with faith seeking understanding. But in some sense, every person walking on the earth operates that way. Just what is your faith in? Faith seeking understanding is how each person lives. And so here we do have a conflict. There is a Christian understanding of the source of knowledge and there's a conflicting claim quite often by pop science about the true source of knowledge. The Christian understands that everything that can be observed and that can be identified and can be looked at, it's part of God's revelation. That everything that has existed and will exist is bearing the marks of its creator. We call this general revelation. I remind you, if you're familiar with it, of a, a passage that tells, of us, tells us of this. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God has revealed knowledge and he has done so through his creation. But the source of knowledge is not him, creation itself. It is ultimately God. And so, for you who is a, if you're a Christian and you're working in the field of science, you're working in the field of revelation. God's revelation, his general revelation of his being, his wisdom, his power. It is all around us. And as you study that, that is true knowledge that you can come to, but understand the source is ultimately God. It is real and true knowledge. 
It's been said, and we can affirm it, that all truth is God's truth. But we need to be careful with statements like that because we're involved and we're fallen and our minds are impacted and affected and poisoned by sin. And so while all of the created order is revealing truth about God, it still has to be interpreted, interpreted by fallen minds. And this is what we do with it in Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So there are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As beings created to be worshipers, if we observe God's general revelation apart from giving reverence and due honor to him, it results in damnable idolatry, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, creeping things. But God has not left us in a fallen state. God has not left us in a state of confusion about the knowledge that he has revealed in creation, he has given us what we call special revelation. Special revelation in which he has clarified the purpose for all things. In which he has told us a way that we might know him and that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. And God has spoken and calls out to humanity in special revelation. And it helps us see the purpose. And here in Colossians, it tells us that the purpose is Jesus. It is Jesus. You wouldn't come to that necessarily from the microscope or from the telescope. It comes to us by ways of special revelation. And so for the Christian who is wrestling with these things, my encouragement to you is this. What you must know about reality and the meaning of life has been made clear in special revelation. And would you do the hard work of making that your foundational, presuppositional idea in all that you do? See, the truth is that special revelation and general revelation will never be in conflict. It's God's truth. The danger is that our interpretation of general revelation could be mixed up. And so therefore, would you prioritize the message of the gospel in all things? That's what Paul is calling you to in Colossians chapter 1, Christian. Is to see everything under the banner of God's gospel that you would see all of existence as being by the Son, through the Son, 
and for the Son. And thank goodness that we're not just left to general revelation. Thank goodness that we're not just left to the scientific method to understand truth and reality. Because things like the coming of Christ belong in the category of mystery and special revelation. We wouldn't come to those conclusions and be able to base our life and eternity on them unless God showed us Things like Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a man, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. How, we, we, know, how, we know how babies are made, but Jesus is unique. How do we know that? God has told us. He has revealed it by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Turn back then to Colossians. Let's finish this section here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul is telling us of the supremacy of Christ in all things. And here he tells us for what end. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The church father, Athanasius, put it this way. We will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker. For the first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. There is no inconsistency, therefore, between creation and salvation. Why? Because the Father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who made it at first. So what do we do with this? I invite you to gaze upon the glory of Christ. Do so in the field of science. Do so every day. Consider way too many cockroaches and innumerable stars and all the other wonders that we could observe in God's good creation. Let it point you to the one that Colossians says it's all about. In a moment, we'll sing, Come behold the wondrous mystery and the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. 
looked to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. What do we do with this question? Well, we sang it earlier. Come then to him who lies within a manger with joyful shepherds. Proclaim him as Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger. In reverent worship, make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace, their lives he will adorn. Christ is the Lord. Receive the gift of heaven. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own imagination. We thank you that you have not left us to our own schemes to rescue humanity. That you have placed us in this world that you have created through your Son, by your Son, for your Son, in order that we might know your Son. So I pray for brothers and sisters here who work in the field of the sciences, Lord, may they do so for the glory of your Son, Jesus. May they be ambassadors for their Savior. But I pray for our young people here in this congregation, Lord, that those who will enter into fields of medicine and other studies in which we require science, Lord, that they would do so as Christ ambassadors for the good of their neighbors and that they might serve the advance of your kingdom as we all are seeking the renewal of your creation by grace. And I pray for those who have been opposed to Christianity. Lord, would you give them eyes to see that all things are by Jesus, for Jesus. And that they would see themselves as needing Christ. That they would flee to him. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.